The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Gawel. I'm Esteban Gomez. I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli. And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place. Three, two, one, and liftoff. Lift off. And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid. And others don't. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors, from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds, are human acts of reclamation. That was according to the wishes of the descendant community. We are Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org. To say that Indians are obsessed with mangoes is to state the obvious. People reach for mangoes in the same way that, you know, the British reach for a cup of tea at moments of high drama. This is Bad Table Manners, a show that seeks to push the boundaries of food reporting and narrative in South Asia. I'm your host, Meher Varma. Hi, my name is Nikesh Shukla. I am a writer and eater of mangoes. This London-based author is one of the guests on this episode of Bad Table Manners, which, as you guessed, is all about India's national fruit. We will explore the many highs and even the lows of the sweet, juicy fruit, which Indians just cannot stop talking about. The hilarious comedian Hari Kondabalu said it best when he said that if Indians are not eating a mango in the summer, right out of the skin, then they're probably gathered in a circle talking about how they want to eat the mango right out of the skin. It's true, we've been discussing mangoes for as long as they've been growing on trees, and it has been described ad nauseum in literature. It's been fetishized and exalted as an object of seduction and has been lovingly devoured by the masses during the scorching Indian summer heat. Renowned Indian food historian and writer Vikram Doctor has deep knowledge about the many sides of this versatile fruit. And he joins us as we talk about all things mango, very much aware that there's some people who just cannot hear another thing about it. It has been rightfully critiqued as a caste-blind subject or something that has emerged as synonymous with India only because of the diaspora's love for it. Mango content critics, we hear you, but please treat the mango talk in this first season of Bad Table Manners in the same way as Indians welcome it in the midst of a brutal summer. 
as an unexpected relief. People get into these either-or debates. You know, people who love Alfonso's will refuse to eat any other mangoes. People who love certain other mangoes will refuse to eat an Alfonso. Uh, you know, to me, this is absurd. I mean, I think one of the real tragedies about India's mango obsession is that we know so little about mangoes from other parts of the country. You know, we're very parochial about our mangoes. And mm-hmm. so we are in this weird... In this episode, I also had fun in the kitchen with the pastry chef, Richie Vesh, founder of In The Know, a boutique bakery based in New Delhi. Although we were a little bit past mango season when we met, she made me a sinfully delicious mango cheesecake. Today I'm going to use my favorite mango, which is a langra arm. It's a variety that you get towards the end of the summer. And I mean, it's got a great flavor. It's green in color, unlike most mangoes, like fully green. It's really fat also. And it's very juicy and very sweet and very yellow. When people outside of India say that they love mangoes, it's kind of hard to take their love seriously. Here, it's almost a spiritual experience, or at least one that should not be taken lightly. Festivals are organized around the fruit, for God's sake, and a box of mangoes is the best gift you can give someone. It's also what the anthropologist Harris Solomon, who studies metabolic illnesses in Bombay, reports to be the main temptation of diabetes patients, the thing that they just cannot resist. Indeed, mango time for the doctors who treat these patients seems a bit like therapy time. Confessions of cheating are commonplace. For Nikesh Shukla, the rules of consuming this beloved fruit are quite strict. He's written tongue-in-cheek about the right way to eat a mango for The Guardian. How to eat a mango properly. 1. Hold the mango. Press it to your cheek. 2. Start squeezing it. You want to squeeze it all over so you can feel the flesh pulping under the skin. Be careful not to break the skin. It's kind of stretchy, so you'd have to have ratty nails to compromise it, but don't break the skin. 3. When you can feel the pulpy, juicy flesh swimming about under the skin, tear a small strip off the top of the mango and pour the juicy flesh into your mouth. Squeeze the flesh out from the bottom slowly like a calippo lolly. Remember those? 4. When the skin is deflated like a four-day-old balloon and the flesh is spent, tear it off. Hold the stone. 5. The stone is the best bit. Suck all the flesh off it. You're done. Enjoy. It's hard to find an Indian novel that does not talk about the mango. Piping hot masala chai is another one, but let's let that be. But the flood is so much that recently, in an article on electric literature featuring South Asian writers who were thankfully disrupting cliches, the author began her piece by saying, I do not want to read about mangoes. Nikesh, the author of a recently published memoir titled Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family, and home, shares some thoughts about the Indian authors writing about mangoes. He says the almost too famous writer Salman Rushdie has some advice on the topic as well. It's a funny thing because I remember hearing uh, uh, someone tweeting a story that um, they'd met Salman Rushdie at a party once and had asked him for writing advice and he said, never write about mangoes. And, And I thought, yeah, it's a real thing that writers from the diaspora are always pulled up on is like they always write about mangoes you know or you know stand-up comics have jokes about mangoes or there's just this obsession with mangoes and the thing that i think is yes while there is like a certain western gaze uh which means that those writers in the diaspora who do write about mangoes are probably more and <laughs> palatable for a western audience and those those writers writing 
stuff that includes mango descriptions might be the ones who tend to get published in the west or but i sort of think in the west we don't really have a canon for like what it is to be a contemporary person of south asian origin and so write whatever you want if you want to write about mangoes write about mangoes if you want to start inflame the mango wars by debating whether the honey mango is better than the alfonso mango do it who cares like why are we tearing down such a small canon when it's something as arbitrary as mangoes (laughs) i guess like people reach for mangoes in the same way that you know the british reach for a cup of tea at moments of high drama in literature but i guess the thing that i think also you know living in the diaspora like mangoes were a treat for for us like they were really hard to come by like and while i don't you know i can't speak to the mango availability in south asia but like in so i guess specifically for me for where i grew up at the time i was growing up in the part of the city i was growing up like having a mango during mango season those mango season months were precious for us because they it felt like a real treat for us and so i just hold mangoes in such high regard because they were always a thing to be shared with the whole family rather than something that felt much more everyday you know whenever i go so yeah Prashti may be better at giving advice than taking it anyway even what has been doled out as maybe sincere literary help has been hard to follow for authors like nikesh the memories of the food are just too powerful to ignore my mum said that what they used to do in aden was when the mango was eaten they would barbecue the stone and then the stone became really delicious after like you'd put it on a dying barbecue overnight and then in the end it would kind of be all melty and gooey and i never tried that but it sounds absolutely delicious this is sort of like one of those half remembered things from her childhood that she told me over over 10 years ago so maybe i'm misremembering her misremembering something you know richie has never met someone who doesn't love eating mangoes and for her as a pastry chef mango season presents endless possibilities one of the hallmarks of a great chef is to have an ingredient and know how to use it in at least 10 different ways like you just have to you know how to use it so like if i had a mango in my hand like for example i would use it in a mango cheesecake i would use it in a mango compote i would make a mango ice cream with it i would make a mango a uh, milkshake with it i would make mango salad with it with avocados and walnuts it's divine and it looks so beautiful like this bright pop of green and this mm-hmm. yellow and rocket leaf it's it's beautiful a mango salsa is also fantastic mm-hmm. so like i think mangoes with green chilies and onions are like a shocking mm-hmm. revelation i really do then i think a mango daiquiri is yummy mango pina colada So speaking of mango season many will actually tell you that this period which was traditionally a long anticipated time is a myth The Goa based food historian Vikram who hosts the Real Food podcast tells us more There are these things now called Salem Alfonsos. Salem is this district in southern Tamil Nadu, which if you remember your geography lessons has a returning monsoon, the northeast monsoon. So uh, the, the logic over there is that by planting Alfonsos in Salem, you will get Alfonsos which will ripen like around now, just before the northeast monsoon uh, starts. So you will have Alfonsos, Salem Alfonsos available uh, in this season right in the, in this season where normally there wouldn't be mangoes available and the other really bizarre example is uh, malawi the uh, southern african 
uh, country where uh, people have started planting, uh, Indian entrepreneurs have started planting again Alfonso's. Um, and so simply so that they can export them back to India because Malawi is like way in the southern hemisphere. So, you know, their summer is our winter. And uh, you will, so now you have these Malawi mangoes which are available in India way out of our regular mango season, which is all rather bizarre, but I suppose it shows how uh, obsessive we are about like mangoes. We're also quite specific about our obsession. When most Indians imagine the king of fruit, they imagine not just the mango, but the Alfonso, the king of kings. But there's plenty of debate about whether this throne is deserved. That is the, the one mango which has, you know, brand name recognition, which, has, which is known in the trade, which travels reasonably well because it has a fairly thick skin. And uh, above all, is uh, totally uh, loved by Gujaratis. Uh, you know, who will pay anything for, for, for these mangoes. Uh, I'm half a Gujarati myself, and so I'm very familiar with this uh, Gujarati mango obsession. And in fact, the only time I've had Malawi mangoes is when a Gujarati aunt of mine uh, sent, uh, sent us a box of Malawi mangoes. It was rather strange. I was curious to know Vikram's thoughts on whether he believes that it would acquire the same popularity if it was perhaps loved by another group of people, specifically a less politically powerful community. I mean, uh, you know, all Indian communities are obsessive about them, their mangoes. So, you know, you know, you you speak to a, a Tamilian about a Bangalapali or a Bengali about a Himsagar or, uh, you know, you speak to... Uh, so people are passionate about their mangoes. I personally think, and again, I should say I'm saying this as half a Gujarati, that uh, Gujaratis have an ability to be really obsessive about food. And uh, the fact that they are a fairly well-off community means that they can indulge these obsessions. So, you know, spending a lot on mangoes is just something Gujaratis do. Vikram admits that he too loves Alfonso's, but he's also reminding people that there are other many amazing varieties out there. I'm not one of these people who, who say, who say uh, that Alfonso's are just overhyped. Alfonso's are a fantastic mango. They have this wonderful smooth flesh and above all, they have the amazing rich aroma. So it's a fantastic mango, but it's not the only mango. And, uh, you know, people get into these either-or debates. You know, people who love Alfonso's will refuse to eat any other mangoes. People who love certain other mangoes will refuse to eat an Alfonso. Uh, you know, to me, this is absurd. I mean, I think one of the real tragedies about India's mango obsession is that we know so little about mangoes from other parts of the country. You know, we're very parochial about our mangoes. And so we are in this weird position of growing some of the world's most amazing mangoes, which frankly are among the world's most amazing fruits. And we have all these fantastic varieties of mangoes, but we just don't experience them in, you know, across India. We just stick to our, our local mango. I asked Vikram what this parochialism is tied to and whether it's perhaps political. He had many theories. All Indians are tend to be most comfortable within their own communities. I mean, you know, it's why we have all, we tend, you know, try to encourage to marriage, marry within our communities and we like our own community's food and are really not very comfortable with other Indian communities' foods and, and things like that. So, yes, I mean, you know, Indians tend to stick to their communities in, in a lot of issues and mangoes become part of that. I also, uh, I mean, there's a more practical reason, to be honest. I mean, mangoes are expensive. I mean, uh, you, you know, fruit is expensive. And one of the more dismal uh, figures that has been coming out of India is that our per capita consumption of fruit is quite low and is not, doesn't seem to be growing. And uh, this reflects the fact that uh, we are not a wealthy country and fruit mm -hmm. is expensive. 
Obviously, mm-hmm. there are cheaper fruits like bananas and things like that. But fruit is relatively expensive and it's seen as a discretionary purchase, not as an essential purchase. So we are simply not eating fruit. And as you know, and again, these last two years have, of, of, the, of the pandemic have been really bad for many people's incomes. Um, and we have had to cut down on a lot of things. I mean, and as our incomes stall, as father reasons inflation rises, fruit is dropping out of our diets, which is a real problem. I mean, people mm-hmm. make an, may, might, might make an exception for mangoes because, you know, so you, you, eating mangoes in, in summer is seen as something special. So you'll do it. But if you're going to spend mm-hmm. a lot of money, you're not going to risk getting a mango you're unfamiliar with. So people will just spend a lot and they will spend, they buy one petty of Alfonso, uh, you know, in summer or thing like that. But you're not going to experiment uh, with, right. with, uh, with getting mangoes from another part of, uh, uh, of India. Parochial obsessions or mango obsessions themselves are far from new. In India, they have a deep history. The Mughals loved their mangoes. Even the most homesick of them, Babur, saw them as one of the only things that was tolerable about India. In his personal diary, which was later translated into English, he concluded, quote, Mangoes, when good, are very good. Though he wasn't a fan of the tree trunk. Quote, the trunk is ill-shaped, but in Bengal and Gujarat, it is heard of as growing handsome. End quote. For context, this was around the year 1590. Most foreigners uh, who have come to India, uh, even if they don't like a lot of the, a lot of things about India, they do like mangoes. Uh, mm-hmm. If you read the Babur Nama, for example, Babur is very uncomplimentary about most Indian fruits. Mm-hmm. He has his, you know, he obsesses about the melons of Central Asia and the, you know, all the plums and apricots and uh, uh, peaches and all uh, that he knew uh, from uh, Central Asia. But he does admit that the, that the mango is quite a good fruit. Similarly, uh, Garcia de Orta, the Portuguese uh, uh, physician who was one of the first to write about the plants of India and who was a tenant of Bombay at the time it was a Portuguese possession, he writes extensively in his uh, book, The Simples, Colloquies and Simples of Drugs of India, uh, on how good the mango is and how, what a fantastic fruit it is. And it's a long, extensive like uh, uh, passage in, in which... Uh, which is an interesting passage historically because it's one of the first mentions of the word Bombay at all. Because as I said, Bombay at that time was this uh, small archipelago of islands owned by the Portuguese. And uh, Garcia Orta, who was based in Goa, was, uh, became a tenant of these uh, islands. He writes in the book that, uh, in his uh, Colloquies of Simples, that, that somebody, uh, one, of your te- one of his tenants from Bombay has come with a basket of mangoes. Yeah, so everybody you know, has appreciated mangoes who come from outside India. I think also, you know, uh, the fact that mangoes come at the height of summer, uh, which mm-hmm. is really the quintessential Indian season. I mean, it is, you know, summer defines India, the heat and the dryness and, and just the, the exhausting nature of our Indian, the Indian summer. And it's like a miracle. The mango comes at the height of summer to make it somehow seem bearable. You know, mm-hmm. so right from the early summer when we have the green mangoes that we'll eat like with uh, you know, with salt and chili powder, and then the ripe mangoes and the mango p- and the pickle making, because obviously summer is an ideal season for making pickle. So, you know, I think we associate mangoes with summer, which is partly why to me the idea of eating mangoes now, just when the monsoons are getting over, seems just completely wrong and bizarre. And above all, it's a fruit that is, grows brilliantly in India, and we grow all these uh, in- incredible varieties. Uh, you know, most of the fruits that are big internationally are temperate weather fruits, but bananas and mangoes are two quintessential Indian fruits, uh, you know, which we grow in incredible variety. So I think it's only natural that we obsess about mangoes. The British who ruled India from 1858 to 1947 
also fostered their own passionate relationship with the fruit, with a particular fondness for pickles. This is why, even in the recent past, when bans have been imposed on the Indian mango in the UK and Europe, protests have been loud and clear. The British like mangoes a lot. I mean, uh, again, the, the, the British, you know, uh, found living in India difficult, but they, but they, it, it, they admitted that the mango was very good. I mean, of course, they did long for British fruits and uh, where possible, they introduced uh, apples and peaches and pears and all that in the hills. But they really liked mangoes and they took to mango pickles, for instance. I mean, like for some of the first Indian food products exported to the, the UK were, you know, pickles like Major Gray's mango pickle and things like that. So this huge love of, of mango pickle became part of uh, British culture. You know, it, 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 people don't realize it, but mango pickle uh, appears in all sorts of unusual places in British culture. Like, for instance, when Queen Elizabeth was crowned, I mean, way back in the 1950s, uh, there was a special dish called coronation chicken, which was invented to mark her coronation. But basically, it's a dish of chicken in a sauce made of mayonnaise flavored with mango pickle. So, uh, yeah, the British really took to mangoes. I mean, they may not have had much opportunity until relatively recently to eat fresh mangoes. But they, they certainly took to mango pickle. And now that they, they can get mango, uh, they get mangoes, I mean, they're, they're really going for them. I mean, I was, you know, there's this uh, a show called The Great British Bake Off. And I was uh, reading, which uh, the new season has just started, and I was reading some of the commentary on it. And, uh, you know, so they were saying that, oh, my God, like everybody seems to be using mango as a flavoring for their cakes. It's suddenly mm-hmm. become the sort of trendy thing, you know. As Nikesh discussed earlier, there's no lack of mango literature. And somewhat problematically, it is also seen as a fruit that lends itself easily to fetishization, a sanitized symbol of tropical erotica. There's always been a sort of sort of erotic sort of appeal of mangoes, and you know the fact that that you know it, it's sort of warm and fits in your hand and things like that. There are all these references to breasts like mangoes and things like that in the Indian Indian tradition. Uh, but mm-hmm. the mango as a symbol has been used in many ways. I mean, like uh, for instance, the the in in textiles that the design called a, called a paisley, which is used on like um, you know mo- many luxurious shawls and. Uh, textiles that came from India is is based on a mango. I mean, it's a mango design. And, you know, paisley has become one of the sort of symbols used, you know, for luxury textiles. So the idea of mangoes as something sensuous and rich and beautiful, yes, is very much like uh, present. I mean, there was a color called Indian yellow, which was one of the, the standard pigments that was used by artists. And it's this very bright, vivid, lasting yellow. The shade of, actually, as it happens, certain kinds of mangoes, not all mangoes, but uh, certain kinds of mangoes. And the story is that it, this pigment came from India and it was made from the urine of cows fed with mango leaves. So, you know, mangoes appear in all sorts of funny places, in textiles, in color, in writing, in all sorts of sensuous ways. Yeah, jewelry. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 the pastry design appears in jewelry also, yeah. What's especially problematic, maybe with the mango fetish, is perhaps the problem with all fetish. The clamor for it doesn't exactly reflect care. The mango industry has a much darker side that Vikram tells us more about. This is a particular problem with, with Alfonso's. The problem with Alfonso's really is that people love them too much. And because they're willing to pay such insane prices for Alfonso's, it puts a lot of pressure on the growers. Uh, basically, you know, for Alfonso growers along the Konkan coast, their mango harvest is now by far and away the most important source of income for them. And that puts them in a very difficult position because, you know, they have these trees 
which uh, are ripening with mangoes. But so many things can go wrong. You know, monkeys can come, hailstorms can come, and hailstorms often happen in the run up to the monsoon, right when the mangoes are ripening. All sorts of problems can affect the mangoes, and that's literally your year's income hanging from a branch. So what they do is then they, 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 there's a huge temptation to pick them early before they're, they're, they're fully ripened on the tree. And mm-hmm. so th- what they do is then they pick the mangoes early and then they artificially ripen them. Now, to some extent, mangoes do ripen a little bit post-picking. But ideally, they should be ripened on the tree as much as possible because that's when they get a really deep complexity and richness of, of flavor. When they are ripened post-picking, there's a sort of flatness that develops. Also, the, the, the question is then how they are ripened. Basically, fruits give out this chemical called uh, ethylene, uh, uh, which, which, which stimulates the ripening process. Now, what can be done, and, and so, you know, for some, some fruits give it off naturally. Bananas, for instance, give off a lot of ethylene naturally, which is why Sometimes if you want to ripen fruits uh, rapidly, you can place them next to bananas. But uh, that doesn't work well enough for these growers. So what they do is they, they, they expose them uh, to calcium carbide, which when water is added to it, exudes this gas uh, called acetylene, I think, uh, which is close to ethylene and sort of mimics the effects of ethylene. Uh, and that stimulates the sort of artificial ripening. Now, there's a lot of bullshit said about calcium carbide, I mean, about it being a carcinogenic, okay, there is very little evidence that uh, uh, eating mangoes uh, uh, exposed to a calcium carbide for ripening uh, is cause cancer. I mean, I, frankly, I think there is no evidence, okay. The only evidence I found about linking uh, calcium carbide to carcinogens is with people who, who were actually handling calcium carbide, basically so the people really at risk are the, are the workers who are actually handling the mangoes and doing the artificial ripening. And that is a cause for concern. I mean, it's, you know, we should not be exposing anybody to like carcinogenic chemicals as much as possible. But, you know, I, I, I see all these people, you know, going to town about, oh, my God, the, the, these uh, calcium carbide mangoes are, are like are wrong because they're going to cause cancer, which to me is like nonsense. OK, there is a very good reason not to eat these mangoes, but it's not because they're going to give you cancer. The reason you shouldn't eat them is because they just don't taste as good as a tree ripened mango, an artificially ripened mango whether exposed to ethylene or acetylene from calcium carbide, has this sort of flatness of flavor, which is nothing like the proper tree-ripened mango. But at the same time, I find it hard to blame like uh, growers because, you know, when so much of your income is, is, is hanging from a tree, you're going to have to be pretty crazy to like, uh, you know, not just pick it and, and ensure your income as much as possible. There are a few people uh, who still, you know, take the risk and tree ripen the mangoes as much as possible. And their mangoes are fabulous. And, you know, I wish people would actually pay good extra money for these properly tree ripened mangoes, because that might encourage farmers to not artificially ripen them. And not for the stupid carcinogenic reason, because that, that's just wrong. I mean, it's just wrong. You know, it's, it may serve the same purpose, but it's, it's bad science. But more than that, you know, I think more than paying more and more and more money for Alfonso's, which actually just exacerbates this sort of spiral of problems. I think people should buy mangoes from other parts of India, experience, you know, the other kinds of amazing mangoes and, you know, spend the extra money on, on that. Despite this reluctance to venture beyond the familiar, there's perhaps never been a better time than now for Indians to buy mangoes from states other than the ones they come from. In many ways, it's it's becoming more possible now 
because of, say, online sales or online ordering. So, for instance, there are now sites coming up where people are able to order uh, mangoes from across India. And, and because, you know, courier facilities and all that are decent, uh, you can get mangoes in relatively uh, good condition. The problem is simply that people don't know about mangoes, you know. So, uh, unless you're, a, say, a Tamilian in Delhi, you're not going to order a Bangalapali because you don't know what a Bangalapali is. So, you know, it, it would be great if there are, if people... Uh, were willing to experiment a more a bit more if say uh, supermarket chains for instance these high end grocery mm-hmm. chains who have mm-hmm. no problems like bringing us really expensive products from around the world they need to spend a little bit more in getting really good indian mangoes from across india and encouraging people to try uh, indian mangoes i don't think my mango palate is refined enough to tell whether fruit has been ripened or not or frankly, even a good mango from an incredible mango. Said, it's a subtle thing. I mean, and you'll know the difference if you have a properly tree-ripened mango. But, uh, you know, the sadness is I think people are also forgetting this. I mean, uh, you, you know, the, I, people, I also hear people say, well, oh, but, you know, what's the big deal about an Alfonso? It's not really great. It's like, so, so not really sweet enough. And uh, first, I think they're, they're being stupid. But then I think that, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe most people have only had access to artificially ripen mangoes. And that's why they don't really see the point of spending a lot of money on, on Alfonso's. It's difficult. I mean, all I can say is that I think people need to track down sources of people uh, who still tree ripen mangoes. People should actually go to mango. I don't, you know, in, in the West, there is this huge tradition of people going to orchards to pick their own apples and things like that. Now, I, it's not uh, it's going to be that easy to pick like uh, mangoes because mangoes are huge trees and apples are relatively small trees. But if you drive through the Konkan in mango season, you will often find farmers selling some patties of, of their home-picked uh, mangoes by the way, roadside. That sort of thing can be done in a more organized way, you know. Uh, people organize mango festivals in cities. But we need to have mango festivals in rural areas, and mm-hmm. encourage people to drive to rural areas and actually experience mangoes from a mango orchard. There's also this heady rush by some to buy the first mangoes of the season. Sometimes it's a gift for the boss. Sometimes it's a romantic gesture. But no matter who you're trying to score with, Vikram advises against this. There are people now, you know, who get Alfonso mangoes in February. And I mean, I and A, those are obviously artificially ripened. Uh, and B... You know, who the, who wants to eat the mango so early? To me, that I refuse to eat my uh, Alfonso's before like uh, May, mm-hmm. even though there are plenty in the market in March and April. And yes, I mean, people say climate change and true, and it's true. I mean, climate change is affecting mangoes and we are seeing earlier ripening and things like that happening. But uh, this sort of pressure to eat mangoes just because they're coming into the market is just rubbish. To, to me, people who are paying those huge amounts for that, a fool and his money are quickly parted. That's all you can say. There's so much variety out there and Vikram says people should experiment more than they do and embrace all the options. You know, I just wish that people tried more Indian mangoes from different parts of India. I mean, you know, we, we have there's this huge passion for luxury foods. People are getting luxury foods from around the world, uh, you know, and paying huge amounts of money. Whereas, you know, mangoes are among the few really luxury products, uh, food products that are actually... Indian. And, uh, you know, we have the opportunity to eat these amazing mangoes. People in other parts of the world just don't have the opportunity to eat mangoes, uh, you know, like we do. And yeah. uh, we, we, we just don't take it. I mean, so, and as I said, I understand. I mean, you know, uh, e- mangoes are expensive. I mean, uh, and 
in a sense, it's a good thing that they're expensive because, you know, we should be paying good prices for fruits if a reasonable proportion of that ends up with the growers. The problem with a lot of apples and uh, even bananas now is, is that uh, we are eating these mass-produced fruits which uh, are just, uh, you know, grown for the market rather than for any real taste. And with mangoes, that is not really the case, except a little bit with Alfonso's. And we still have this huge diversity of mangoes across India. We still have all these variations and we should celebrate that. And we, we need to stop being so parochial about our mangoes, you know. The craze for mangoes at any cost means that canny entrepreneurs are now marketing varieties and even concocting their own versions that are supposedly good for health. In this corrupted market, there's even apparently a mango that's good for diabetics. One thing that started happening is that in places in Saurashtra and Kutch, they've started planting this variety of mango called Tommy Atkins and marketing it as a low-sugar mango for diabetics. To me, this is a level of insanity that is hard to explain because Tommy Atkins is a completely crap mango which was developed in the U.S. And it's the mango that Indians in the U.S. love to hate. I mean, because... When they were in the U.S., you know, it's, it's like almost a mockery. The only mango they could find was Tommy Atkins because it grows in Florida and places like that. But to them, it's like a mockery of mangoes. It's just a terrible, terrible, sad version of all the wonders of what a mango can be in India. And many of them just had to deal with it because that was the only mango available until uh, recently, to some extent, uh, uh, mango exports have started. And now there are people who are actually planting this ridiculous American mango in India, the home of mangoes, and simply for the, the fact that to, to allow diabetics to eat mangoes. I mean, I mean to me, that's insane. I, yeah, uh, you know, I sympathize with people who are diabetic and who want to eat mangoes, but I would you know, then rather just you know, maintain my health and you know, have just maybe one mango at very, very long intervals rather than having this sort of crap mango called Tommy Atkins. If all of this talk about mangoes hasn't made your mouth water yet, maybe it will soon as we end this episode in the kitchen with Richie, who baked me a delightful cheesecake. It had sugar, vanilla, fresh lemon juice and sour cream. And of course, a mango. What I like to do with this mango cheesecake is that besides of putting mango slices on top of the cheesecake once it's done, I also do like a full mango cube and put it inside the cheesecake. So I bake the mangoes inside the cheesecake and then I put fresh mangoes on top. So it's got a real serious mango punch. If you're counting calories or worried about the fat in this cake, you're probably not her client or to be real, even her friend. But if you insist, she has advice for you. Give up everything else to make room for the mango. Do anything for the mango. I think that like my mother-in-law, she's obsessed with mangoes. And she calls a dietitian and says, I'm on a diet. Can you please make me a diet? So her diet plan actually has mango for dinner. So she can't eat anything else, but she can have one mango for dinner. And she's happy. <laughs> there are a lot of people like that. Well, I stopped eating them once at, at one point in my life because I thought that they were making me break out. And then, I don't the know, heat. I blamed the mango, so I stopped eating it. But now I just said, I don't care. <laughs> no, I think my body just said I won't break out, just eat me and just eat the mangoes. Richie shared her recipe with me to share with you. Thank you for joining me on this episode. I'm Meher Varma and after all of this, I don't know whether you can hear me say the word mango again. 
or if I can hear myself say it. But mangoes. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode of Bad Table Manners and beyond. This episode is possible because of all the people who work behind the scenes. I'd like to thank my producer Jennifer O'Neill, co-script editor Vidya Balachander, audio editor Evan Lindsay, researchers Julia Fine and Carolyn Crosby, and intern Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glacier, sound engineer Max Kotelchuk, associate producer Quentin Lebeau, and sound intern Simon Livendar. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Bad Table Manners at whetstoneradio.com. Mm-hmm.